Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Howdy, howdy. Hi. And we are here to talk about Season 1 of David Wynn Peaks. <laughs> we are 12 miles south of the Canadian border. Population 51,201. It really feels more like 501. Uh, but uh, before we... Or before handing it off to Chris... Uh, You've obviously watched the series several times, but Chris, have you had any experience with it before? Um, yeah, at some at some point in college, I think I started, you know, it would be like late 2000s, downloaded a couple episodes, and I think I started it, but um, I didn't uh, get too far. I think I might have mentioned it before. So you probably remember from, from your own misspent time in college, it's easy to get distracted with other things yep. <laughs> very quickly, so I didn't have the the uh, regimen down to, to just plow through this like I did uh, watching it this time around, which I'll get into when it's my turn to talk about the show. Uh, my colleague viewing very much depending on whether my friends were also watching it, and then, then I would plow through it. They didn't watch Comics. I did watch, uh, where was I, Chris? Like, partway through season two? Like, right when you learned, spoiler, and you learned who killed Laura Palmer that David Lynch never wanted to reveal? Yep, you stopped, like, right after that. Um, I don't even know if you made it an episode after that. (laughs) I got to where I needed to be, and then I just fell off the train. But, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it when I watched it then, and uh, I just fell off the wagon of of watching an episode every now and again. But now that I have an excuse, I will definitely have to watch it all. Uh, See, I have notes that business I have. uh, I have a lot of pages of notes of just, like, random stuff that I I thought of while I was uh, watching the show, but... Without further ado, take it away, Chris. Twin Peaks, the greatest thing ever. Um, so what Twin Peaks is about is it follows David Lynch's uh, preoccupation with not so much the underbelly of society, but the duality of people, um, hence the title Twin Peaks. It's very straightforward. Um, it's not about boobs we like are, the restaurant. Yes, it's not, not boobs like the restaurant. Jesus Thanks for reminding me that existed. <laughs> um, it takes place in a quiet little mountain town up in the upper east corner of Washington State. Like Corey said, twi- 12 miles south of the Canadian border, 5 miles west of the border. Uh, presuming he's meaning Idaho. Is that Idaho? Uh, that would be Idaho if it's Washington. Um, and Laura Palmer, the homecoming queen, the the darling of the entire town, has been found murdered, wrapped in plastic, um, as good old Pete says. And this this death this death is an entryway into the town. Um, we meet a huge cast of characters because of their relation to and adjacent from Laura Palmer and the series intentionally spider webs out into multiple multiple storylines following each of these different characters in many different situations at the forefront is our wonderful fbi special agent dale cooper played by kyle mclaughlin um who comes in once a second victim has been found crossing the canadian border on a couple of railroad tracks uh she thankfully is not dead that's how she was able to cross the border um, but that makes it a federal investigation, and Mr. Cooper discovers very quickly early on that this could be related to another murder that happened a year earlier in another part of Washington, and thus begins the spiraling, twisty, turvy journey into madness brought to us not just by David Lynch, but also by TV veteran Mark Frost, 
Uh, Mark Frost was best known for uh, Hill Street Blues back in the day, one of the groundbreaking uh, TV crime dramas. Um, and hold on, you missed that he co-wrote the Fantastic Four, the the, the movie from Roger Corman. What? Uh, yeah, the 2005 and 2007 movies. Oh, did he really? Listed as a co-writer. Very interesting. Um, I didn't. I did. I don't think I knew that. But that is quite the uh, quite, quite the story. <laughs> Um, and the story kind of goes that Mark Frost helped build the world and flesh out the characters, and David Lynch controlled the direction of the the, the series, um, the dreaminess, the quirkiness, the craziness. That's pretty much all David Lynch, and the soap opera half is uh, Mark Frost. Um, so one of the things that I love about the series is how it was basically the first of its kind we have to remember this came out the the pilot aired in 1989 and the or it was made in 1989 and the series didn't uh come out on television until 1990 that at this time we're used to serialized television now that's become the norm quote unquote peak tv or cinematic tv however you know it's phrased in the pop culture zeitgeist now serialized television stories where they have a big overarching story that crosses one season or multiple seasons is the norm. Back when Twin Peaks came out, it wasn't the norm. The only things that did this were soap opera. Um, And yeah, you did have a couple of of primetime soap operas like Dallas, but they were still soap opera. They weren't crime thriller dramas. Um, And that's why Twin Peaks as a TV series also feels very soap opera-ish at times because that was a a mode of storytelling that they were kind of drawing from in order to create this magical, mystical world. Um, and so they, they pulled a lot of those soap opera elements into it, kind of making fun of it. There's a, a sub-TV show inside the TV show called Invitation to Love that is straight parody satire of a real a for real deal soap opera um and twin peaks changed changed the world um it was a huge pop culture thing um during its first season run um what happened to this poor series during season two i'll talk about later when we do the season two episode but it was a pop culture phenomenon um magazine covers the whole nine the soundtrack won the grammy that year, um, which is well deserved because the soundtrack is one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, in my not so humble opinion. Um, and it took a little bit, but basically you, you got the X Files after. You wouldn't have the X Files without Twin Peaks. You wouldn't have the Sopranos without Twin Peaks. A lot of people quote the Sopranos as being the biggest shift to serialized storytelling. The the peak TV. The uh, creator of The Sopranos said very directly that he was a majorly influenced by Twin Peaks. Um, but it, it's it's funny how all the things that Twin Peaks influenced came out years and years later because because basically of what happened with season two of Twin Peaks. Um, it wasn't an immediate cultural shift. But now we have so many shows that owe so much to Twin Peaks. Um, Riverdale, um, I affectionately call Teen Peaks. Because it's literally Twin Peaks, except all teenagers, and uh, they gender-swapped the, the, the murdered kid. Um, 
I could go on for, for hours and hours about various aspects of Twin Peaks, but I gave the general idea, the, the basic setup of the series. Um, Corey, how do you want to approach this? Do you want to talk episode to episode or just kind of go a little overarching? I mean, I think since uh, the story is relatively serialized, um, it's just going to be easier to reform talk about whatever comes to mind at the moment. Diane, yeah. what I have in my hand right now is a box of chocolate bunnies. That's a very important quote. I want everyone listening to this to remember that. Diane, I'm holding in my hand a box of chocolate bunnies. Probably one of the most important lines in the whole series. You'll never find out why until much later. Corey... What? There was yeah. fish in the percolator. I was gonna. I wanted to comment. That's like the best line read. It's like the perfect del- line read. There is a Bullshit. fish in the percolator. <laughs> he says it so matter of factly. Like this is clearly not the first time that's happened to him. <laughs> I love how that they call back to it later. He's sitting there scrubbing the percolator and he sniffs it. He's like, oh. <laughs> And not just that, like, they're at the diner, and Scooper and uh, Harry are having a cup of coffee, having a slice of pie, and he's like, still can't get that fish to my mouth. Yeah. This must be where pies go when they die. So uh, one of the things about, about Twin Peaks that kills me is how quotable it is. Like, most of every line is, is just so memorable. Um, you could, in any given episode, we could sit here and riff quotes for for hours. Um, see, it's it's in season one. There's they even did treat yourself before treat yourself in season one of Twin Peaks, and I find that incredible. Um, it's just it's uh. so Corey, yeah. begin us. Yeah, um, I uh, I really like this first season. I am a big fan of the television medium over movies usually. Uh, because of the way that uh, you're you're allowed to uh, in a, in a couple episodes in in this series so far at least they have set up something they've dropped this little uh, piece of knowledge uh, and then several episodes later they follow up on that and like in movies you're not really uh, able to do that unless it's the MCU where you have several movies to do that um, right. but typically movies are uh, put into one thing and then you move on from it. Well, maybe you don't move on from it, but uh, you get the point. Um, but in in Twin Peaks, I finally see that like why it, they, why is there a three and a half hour cut of Dune? Why is there a three and a half hour cut of Blue Velvet? It's because David Lynch and his ideas really belong on television. He has a um, a huge, huge uh, idea base for all of these characters and all of these things that are happening. And, like, Twin Peaks was a movie, you would get at least half the cast, if not, like, a quarter of the cast. And uh, you would not get nearly as much depth into uh, things like Norma. Like, we find, we see Norma, I believe, in the first episode, the owner of the diner, and we don't find out that she has a husband who is incarcerated until, like, they are at his parole hearing in the fifth episode or something. And, like, those are the kinds of things that I really love about television, where we are able to establish ourselves with one character, and then we are able to uh, expand upon that character once we've learned this and that about them. And even if we don't learn anything, we just get this bit of information about what they do, and then we learn more about them, and then we see... Like, actually, uh, Norma and what is... Hank. Hank. 
uh, Norma and Hank are uh, also in this very uh, not sexually incestuous, incestuous relationship, but this uh, very within the town incestuous relationship that seems to be going on, where Harry is working with Josie and Josie is working with uh, Ben, and Josie is also working or Ben is also working with Catherine against Josie, and then, like, that is the weave of shit that's going on in Twin Peaks, and that is <laughs> uh, what I really like about it. You're able to build that in in seven seven episodes? Uh, eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that. So, like, what you just talked about there, that's exactly why I got into anime. I could never get into American television um, because, you know, I'm older... So I'm from a time period where Twin Peaks hadn't quite changed the world yet. Um, I like the standalone episodes more of the X-Files than I do the uh, mythology episodes of the X-Files because they were it just didn't work for me the way that they were trying to bridge it between seasons. And American TV still, even though after it became serialized, it doesn't really work for me. I like I watch some TV you know, a lot more nowadays. And I like a lot of shows. Like, I don't hate TV. I like a lot of shows. But there's nothing that feels like it genuinely changes me or moves me as a piece of art. Um, But anime always did. So that's why I became an anime fan, because of the serialized storytelling and the setting up and the payoff of characters and the the huge tapestries that they, they work with. That's what that's what I love. Twin Peaks was the first American TV show that I ever saw that gave me that same self uh, sense of satisfaction, that that same uh, feeling of wonder that that anime always gave me. And to think that I've been missing out on it for for twenty odd years when I finally had watched it in uh, two thousand ten or two thousand eleven was the first time I watched it. Um, and, and that's one of the things that Twin Peaks does so very, very well, um, as you were saying, is how it builds the stories for each of the different characters and um, gives them dimension and depth. They're not just, you know, some random character. Like a lot of American TV still has that problem. You, They create these huge cast of characters, but you don't spend any time with them because the the main storyline follows the main character and so you're you're constantly following the main character in these serialized stories and the cast is just basically filling out the background twin peaks never feels like that you're you're spending time with their individual storylines and getting to know them each as people yeah and it's funny that you mentioned that it wouldn't work as a movie because twin peaks is a movie um when it first came out the pilot was sold to Europe as a film. There's a, a the international pilot that's on the discs is half an hour longer. It wraps up the story, reveals who the killer is, and has a kind of conclusion. And it's very unsatisfying. Um, <laughs> it's it, they they took they took that footage, the footage from that extra half hour, and transformed it into parts of Cooper's dream sequence in episode two. Um, you know, the, the episode where he dreams about the red room with the dwarf. Yep. Um, the footage with Mike and Bob giving their monologues in the what looks like a, a boiler room. Those are that footage is taken from that ending on the international pilot. Um, 
So he was able to reincorporate some of that footage and build something greater. But as that standalone film, you get the pilot without uh, it, it. It skips Jacoby taking the necklace from under the rock. It cuts that part out and goes straight into this conclusion where there's a final showdown and they find the killer um, Bob. It's not a spoiler, really. You could say it's a spoiler, but then you haven't watched season two. <laughs> Um, and it just, it's not satisfying. It doesn't, it does, it, it works as an individual piece, but you can feel this quality shift from that first hour and a half of greatness to just, yep, they're finishing things off here and it's, it's poop. I mean, obviously we, I did not watch the international pilot nor, I mean, I think it'll be probably at, at some point something I watch, but I wanted to just kind of rave about the pilot. Uh, it's like the, the introduction to this this universe um, and establishing everything. Um, I think it's you know the double the classic double length episode to to set the stage um, and it really just introduces you to everybody, but it doesn't leave you with any conclusions. It makes you say, okay, I have to see what the, what's up with all these people. Like, and it's a real strength that television has um, when you want a large cast of characters. I mean unless you're doing a, a long series with two and a half, three hour films like Lord of the Rings or something, it's just so hard to introduce a narrative structure that allows you to really expand the cast outside of a, a very narrow window. Um, and I would absolutely agree in terms of watching television. It's why I, I, when I was growing up and I found anime, I was like, what is like, this is, you know, every, I got to tune into every episode. There's all these characters all over the place. I didn't, I mean, it was, you know, not even a teenager, and I didn't quite grasp exactly what the appeal was, but that was, had to be like the biggest appeal um, beyond the fact that it looked awesome. You know, like you know, you grew up on Hanna Barbera cartoons, and then you see this, and it's like gonna blow your mind. Um, <laughs> which is what Twin Peaks really must have been for a lot of people who were, you know, just watching police procedurals. And I mean, I think '80s TV was a lot of you know happy family sitcoms in towns like Twin Peaks, mind you. Like you know, you know they they. Turn, they kind of turned that on on its head. Not I don't not as deliberately and overtly as Blue Velvet was as a film, but it was still the same kind of concept. You know, years of these TV shows and pieces of media showing idyllic towns, you know, with low stakes adventures that were at hand. And then David Lynch is making these pieces of media that are these are these are very high stakes. I mean, people are legitimately dead. And on top of that, there's all these other people in the town with just, especially in Twin Peaks, with just all these outsized motivations and who's, I, it feels very accurate to say who's screwing who in terms of Twin Peaks. <laughs> both, both sexually and figuratively. Yes, yes, I was going to say, in every con, in every use of the word screw, it's that's that's the town of Twin Peaks. <laughs> um and it just must have been so radical to people turning tuning into this show, um, especially. And it, you're right. I was trying to piece like I know the X Files came in shortly thereafter, kind of the bridge. Beyond that, you had um, to some capacity Star Trek: The Next Generation did some carryovers of plot points and characters, but I mean it wasn't really until '94, '95 that you start seeing a lot of serialized dramas show up. And they weren't on network TV for the most part. Um, and then eventually, I think that that kind of serialized really, you know, 
merging the the serial drama with you know surrealism and and the wide cast of characters you kind of don't know exactly what each person's motivation is and there's you know not rushing to conclusions that really took off with the sopranos i think and that was that started in what 99 i thought it was 98 but it could have been it was very end of the decade so you basically have twin peaks at the very start of this decade and nothing really adapts the lessons of twin peaks and tries to do what they were trying to do until hbo goes okay you know hbo really leans in on on almost making shows like twin peaks um, I'm sure there I might be forgetting one or two that happened in between, but The Sopranos was the big hit, and that after The Sopranos, everything on TV changed. Um, a couple years later, ABC went back into the the serialized drama game with Lost, and I mean, really, the last 15 years, 20 years of American TV can owe a lot what Twin Peaks tried to do and the influence it had, um, and it's really incredible because it just feels like US TV especially on networks, was just so obtuse to taking chances. Um, everything, you know, sitcoms were super safe and sterile in the 80s, um, and it wasn't until cable started kind of pushing the networks to, to have to try new things But in the 90s that they tried new things, but it's just funny because before all of that, David Lynch goes, hey, here's Twin Peaks, this is really what you guys should be doing on TV, and they didn't pick up the lessons for for a decade <laughs> yeah uh can we, i mean ABC, uh, sopranos. I was gonna say ABC, yeah sopranos was uh, the one that 1999 1999 okay january 1999, so, it filmed, so okay so filmed in 98 and yeah. probably pitched in 97 yeah oh, okay so yeah i mean bookend of the whole decade i mean it's kind of funny i like i i remember when i was younger there was talk of abc as a network basically being dead like they had no shows anybody watched um but you look at this, the kind of the people that crossed paths on the network during the, the 90s, and it's like a who's who of people who went on to make a lot, a lot of people who went on to make some really landmark TV shows. Um, um, what's, what was his show before the West Wing? Um, Sports Night was on um, uh, ABC, I think, and then you know they canceled it, and he went and pitched the West Wing to NBC, and all the worst people in the world find that the greatest television show ever. <laughs> um, I still have never seen an episode. Nope, neither have I. Um, I'm not either. But um, <laughs> um, but I, it you know I, talking about that and just its its legacy. It's just it's just wild to to think that not just like sometimes people say oh yeah this this was like the radical influence on a generation of people. Um, I think you know punk rock you know everybody's like well the sex pistols were the radical influence on all the british punk scene and, and post-punk bands um but and this may be a a hot take but i mean all the bands that succeeded the sex pistols i think are better than the sex pistols whereas like <laughs> the, the shows that is, have seemed to have succeeded twin peaks like i have not delved dove into the full second season yet but i mean this first season is as good as any other television that's ever been produced it's just mm-hmm. incredible like the characters are amazing the way that they're all given the way that they're all just given the backstories that you're slowly learning more about um and there's no rush to do it um to tell you what each person's motivation is because they're just so captivating on their own i mean like we mentioned him earlier, but Pete is just the best, best damn character <laughs> there is. Pete is the only character that doesn't have some kind of bad shady side to him. 
Literally, he is the only character that is just pure. I have in my notes <laughs> that Pete is too good for this town. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like it's like it's like he got lost and wound up in the wrong town. But he's like the native like lump like he's like the is he he's like the native lumberjack, and everybody else in the town's like out to you know rob the town blind, or they have you know they're they're associated with bad people, and he's just like straight as an arrow, the you know just does his thing, and his wife's a horrible person, but he stands by her. What a guy. I see Jack Vance. She's my I wife. Jack Vance. My wife. My wife. Go <laughs> uh, yeah. so back to uh, like your uh, treatise on television. Uh, DS9 was 1993, and I think that is also pretty Twin Peaks. Like, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if yeah. they, they were not influenced by that. Uh, and it has... Bab- Babylon 5 as well, I would assume. Uh, it's... Uh, Big overarching story of DS9, the war between, I forget what they're called, Bajorians and the other people. Uh, but yeah. And it also has like these weird dream sequences with Odo and Cisco and stuff. Uh, but as far as the, like, the, the greatness of the, especially the pilot, um, since there is a pilot and then there is a first episode which confused me and then Chris fucked with me for a bit and was like, oh, that's just David Lynch. Uh, we, it takes like 30, 30 minutes uh, of the, uh, like hour and a half long pilot to even meet Cooper and like that is another um, another thing that about television and about the series that I really liked like where we first see um, Lauren's body in the lake you get a you get a call from uh, from the police saying this is happening Leeling is in the middle of a business deal and he obviously cannot finish that um, there's just random Norwegians there that we don't know what's going on with them. Um, the Norwegians are leaving! Yeah. <laughs> uh, Laura's parents don't seem concerned at all that Laura was missing all night, saying she's probably with Bobby. Um, but then you see Bobby, and he's just an absolute idiot. Uh, he's caught up in, in all of these things. We don't even know the extent of it uh, now, but he is dealing drugs over the border from uh, from Leo um, and the Renaults, the French-Canadians, who don't seem that much smarter than Bobby. Um, but we go through like this whole cast of characters from the town before even seeing Kyle McLaughlin at all. And then we finally see him. He uh, falls in love with the, with the trees. He asks about them. And then uh, straight from there, uh, Douglas Furs to Can I See the Octopi Report? <laughs> I love that whole thing. He's, he, he's sitting there, he's walking, he's like, look, Sheriff, you know, want to get some things straight right away. When the federal, get, you know, when the Bureau gets called in, we're in charge. You work for me. I know local law enforcement has a lot of problems with that. I just want to make sure that we're okay. And, he, and, you know, something to that effect. And then Truman, Harry, replies, like I said, we're happy to have you here. Without missing a beat, he just raises his hands like, Sheriff, you've got to tell me, what kind of magnificent trees have you got growing around here? And then as soon as he tells him, Douglas Furs, Douglas Furs, take me to the autopsy room. So it's not just that 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 end, it's the beginning part, too. It's just this beautiful piece that's just, like, shoved in there that, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God. Yeah, and the matter-of-factness in which Harry talks, we later on, we get... Uh, I just need a place to sleep and uh, whatever else he said. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, reasonable price. Reasonably priced. Uh, I can set you up at the whatever inn. The Great Northern. Great North. He's like, now I need it to be all of these things, Harry. I can get you a great rig at the Great North. 
I I love Dale's just overall like the 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 op like there's just the perpetual peppy optimism in the face of the fact that his job is just exposing him to just dark seedy dep- things that could make anybody you know sad and depressed and he's like that is he's like just raves about coffee you know good pie you know recommends like recommends pies to people in town like <laughs> the lamplighter in the lamplighter if you get a chance to come up by this way you're gonna have to stop by a piece of that magnificent pie just it just just overwhelming positivity that he has and it runs works in such stark contrast to i mean excluding pete everybody else in the town there's clearly something that we're not exposed to about them um you know so everybody's got this just the dark side of them there's something that is preventing them from being happy um and then you see dale who you know for whatever reason like for every reason he's capable of having this happiness this genuine like enjoyment and happiness in his life um which i mean it's so it's really hard to do I, i'll I'll, I'll say, like, in terms of a, a narrative structure to have someone like Dale balance, like, balance out everything with without him feeling out of place. Like, he feels like he belongs in Twin Peaks, but he's also, because he's deliberately pointed to as an outsider, I think it works that this guy is allowed to be the, the positive, positive reinforcement guy, the guy who's fascinated by trees and coffee and all the simple things in the world. Um well, it, it, you inadvertently make it another great point about the series as a whole, and it's something that only David Lynch is able to do. I find like it, other directors and filmmakers have have done it, but nobody does it as well as David Lynch. And it's that balance. He's able to to make everything feel organic. He's balancing between light and dark, negativity and positivity. Um, quirkiness, dead seriousness, murder, pie eating, all these crazy elements put together, but none of it feels off. It doesn't feel like you're getting this tonal whiplash. It doesn't feel like you're bouncing between all these uh, deferring elements uh, like a pinball machine. It feels organic. It feels true. Um, And that's something that I've I've only been able to experience through David Lynch's work to this level of perfection. And he does it the best in Twin Peaks. You know, you, you get the balance in, in Blue Velvet, but it's much, much more of a dark film. It's, it's overall a dark film, but you're able to have Jeffrey exist within that world, but then, you know, the world changes him. It works in its own way. Here, it's just kind of all over the map, and it still feels normal strangely enough it feels normal i think what really helps with that is that we uh we start with kind of a happy-go-lucky town seeing uh people not really care that laura is missing and like we skip from the seriousness of finding out that laura is murdered to cooper who is just talking into a tape recorder to a uh faceless uh diane faceless formless diane that he needs to do this and that um and that really lightens the mood and sets the stage for uh, what kind of television show this is going to be. And also the soundtrack really helps because it's... it's the soundtrack's the best soundtrack Like you could put to a show like this. From the very first key of the, ver- of the intro theme song all the way through, it's such an amazing soundtrack. My Hands down, my favorite score. I listen to it uh, regularly. Zero percent surprise. 
<laughs> to no one's surprise. Yeah, no, I, I I just put on the soundtrack to Twin Peaks occasionally. I have it on vinyl too. We don't go there. <laughs> I I would I want to say I also like want like the way that some of the stuff is filmed itself. It's borrowing from so many other genres and styles. I thought was it the third at the end of the third episode when. Um, who's it? I forget. Um, they're walking in the woods. Um, and um, who's walking? I forget. I forget. Just walking in the woods. But there's it's they're holding flashlights, and it's just done in this like haunting slasher film. Like, yeah, that's looks that's like, Mike and Bobby going to meet Leo. Mike and Bobby. Yeah, that's right. Mike and Bobby going to meet meet um meet Leo. Yeah, and it's just done. It's like it's like you're expecting someone to jump out behind them the whole time because you just have the instinctual sense from watching really anything else when you see you know oh it's dark we get these like shaky jet jittery flashlights like something's gonna jump out the whole time it just like keeps the way that he's able to they're able this show is able to raise tension even un, i don't want to say unnecessarily but even if the payoff isn't happening yet it just like you know it's adding more tension that you just sit with and you have to take it to the next episode or you have to take it to a later scene um and then sometimes he pays you off right away. I because um, there's a scene, episode five. Bobby and Shelly are in Shelly and Leo's house, and they're like, "What's going to happen if Leo shows up?" And you're like, and they're like super tense because you're like, "Oh my god, they might like have to shoot Leo if he shows up or something." And then you know, just as you think something is, the tension's ratcheting up to that point, you hear a door open and you like jump out of your seat, and it's just Dale and uh, Harry walking, like opening the door to the. Uh, <laughs> police station is it's a scene transition and it's just like the most crafty scene transition you can do i'm like i just like stuck with me immediately i was like that is brilliant work like it's just like the little things in this show are are if you know if i were to watch season one again i'd pick up on on dozens of other things like those two particular items that stuck out to me and just how the tension is ratcheted up and paid off and, and you're tricked as the viewer into being like oh i was tense for no reason yeah and there's another moment later on when bobby and shelly are still together again in shelly's house and uh they ask again what would you do if leo comes in and bobby picks up the gun that shelly got and he's like hey leo how's it going what are we gonna do here and I'm like, then mind shooting him <laughs> as if Acting like bobby badass. would ever do any of those things <laughs> Well, it, 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 the, the best part about that scene, you know, he's acting all badass, like, oh, Leo, I'm going to shoot you, blah, blah, blah. Then the, the, the there's a knock at the door. It's Andy. Yeah, and yeah. As soon as the door the, the, the knock on the door happens, Bobby's like, oh, God. He turns into a scared little baby that he is. God, Bobby and Shelly, it's a mess. Um, I did have in my notes, they had uh, in episode one, uh, or the second episode, whatever we would like to call it, um, we find out yeah, that so let's pause real quick to, to explain how we're do- talking about that to the to the listeners. On the discs, the way that the discs are organized, it has the pilot episode, and then it starts over at episode one. But if you're watching it on, like, Netflix or something, the pilot is episode one. So... Oh, yeah. Sorry. I Yeah, I called Pup the Pie. I was going... So it's episode... My mind were, would be if you're on the disc two and four were the episodes I was talking about. Yeah, so it gets very confusing to talk about it because when you're watching it on Netflix or on Vudu or something like that, it just runs episodes one through eight, whereas on the discs it goes pilot and then episodes one through seven. Yeah, I'm obviously playing off of the discs here, which is why I'm bringing this out well. Sorry, continue, Corey. Uh, yeah, so 
episode one, I guess, <laughs> we find out that Bobby owes Leo $10,000, but we don't really find out why. And that's like another thing that I really like about this is that we we get this piece of information and then uh, where even is the fact that we find out that Bobby is selling cocaine. Um, they, the next episode, we find out that Bobby and his friend are buying drugs from Leo. Um, and then we kind of put it together that like, oh, they owe 10 grand to Leo for buying these drugs and having never sold them. And then that really pays off in the last episode when Bobby dumps a bag of cocaine into James' motorcycle, which the cops later found uh, in the motorcycle. And they're like, what was this doing in your bike? Um, and at this point, they figure out that whoever, uh, or that Leo was selling drugs through a high school. In so the, the uh, webs are coming together. <laughs> sort of. Which it's funny that when uh, Bobby puts the cocaine in James's gas tank, this is where my I haven't watched all the classic films like hinders me. Um, Bobby calls the cops and pretends to be Leo Johnson and says that uh, James is an easy rider. And for some reason, Harry and D- and Cooper knew instinctively that that meant look inside the gas tank for cocaine. Um, oh, that's <laughs> which I why still they looked. Yeah, I still haven't seen Easy Rider, so I don't know how that comes into play in the movie or whatnot. So I feel I feel naked there, but yeah, that's how they knew how to look. I've also Easy Rider. I assume he put something in there that would like uh, the gas would disintegrate this bag and then it would explode. <laughs> like sugar in the gas tank. Yeah, that's actually what I thought he was doing. It was going to be something like, and, and we're almost like tricked into thinking that's what he's doing. I think as to and to an extent. That he's putting something that's you know gonna cause oh, physical yeah. bodily harm, yeah. you know, explosion or some something, or, or cause the bike to just spin out of control. Um, all right, so we've maybe talked about half the characters. <laughs> Should we get into some of these other ones? Yeah, I, I want to talk about Audrey Horn because uh, some of your your comments that you wrote down on your list, Corey, I, I think are, are interesting observations. Um, I find Audrey a uh, incredibly interesting character. Um, she does not seem to like Twin Peaks, or at least not seem to like her life, Twin Peaks, uh, as she wants to be mischievous in literally any way that she can. She is the one that tells, uh, the Norwegians that someone died in this town. They're trying to solve it, which sent the Norwegians away. Um, <laughs> and then later on, she, uh, cons her dad into getting her a job at the department store and says she wants to work from the bottom and go to the top, and then... Um, she cons the person <laughs> that is uh, assigning her a spot into putting her at the perfume counter by saying, look, I could tear my dress right now and run out and say that you made a move on me. What's going to happen then? Um, oh, and in between that, not in between that, even before all of that, she shows up naked in Cooper's bag. And <laughs> like, what is happening with Audrey's entire character? Um but Audrey also seems to be the person that we're finding out a lot of the good stuff about about Laura through, or at least she's the one that I made the most comparisons to, because uh, as we learn more and more about Laura's character, uh, who is obviously dead, we find out that maybe uh, Audrey is a better person than Laura, or at least someone with fewer mental health issues than Laura. Um, because I have no idea what is going on with Laura, but she seemed to be dating, uh, Bobby, James, and Dr. Jacoby, and Dr. Jacoby is this weird psychologist who wants to stroke the underskirt of a hula tie. 
Dr. Jacoby. Just to, just to, just to throw in here, just because uh, Laura was not dating Dr. Jacoby, she was seeing him as a patient. I would not be surprised if it's both. I would not be surprised either, but it is never revealed that she was in a relationship with him. I would, will bounce off of that with, with Audrey as really a cap. Uh, probably of all the, the, the kids in town, she's the most captivating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to, t- I think it's, it's, we're, we're kind of, I think implied at first, like, hey, here's this, she's like the, the rich kid who doesn't really, you know, need to care about anything in town. And it's kind of played against your expectations. As more and more gets revealed, I, I think it's pretty clear that she wants nothing to do with Twin Peaks because she knows the town is rotten to the core. Um, and that's why she's in a, perhaps a, a bit of a brat or, um, mischievous. Um, it's, not due to some major to undermine good people. It's because she just, you know, think knows all these people's dark secrets or wants to find them out. And she sure succeeds at that. Yeah. She's, she's, she's one of my favorite characters. It's not Cooper. Um, the whole bit where she winds up naked in Cooper's bed in his hotel room. That is such one of the, the best scenes. And it opens the, the episode, um, with this great dialogue where Cooper is, is talking to Audrey and he's telling her, he's like, you know, what I want and what I need are two very different things. What you need right now is a friend, someone who will listen. You know, let me go get a couple of malts and some fries and tell me all your troubles. Um, that is is one of the defining moments of the show for me because it really opens up Audrey's vulnerability and shows, you know, just how kind-hearted cooper is like you know that cooper has a thing for audrey um their their interactions previously up to that point are very flirtatious uh cooper even at one point goes audrey how old are you and she's like 18 and he's just kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> sure you are um no I, I i take it as more of a mm-hmm and uh but when presented with that situation cooper's not going to take advantage of her you know, she's in an emotionally vulnerable place and she's dealing with a lot on her own. You know, the, the impact of Laura's death is revealing so much about the town that she thought she knew. It's revealing more about her father that she never knew. Um, and that's one thing that the show doesn't really uh, show us through m- most of the other characters is how Laura's death modifies the perception of the town um we get we get laura's funeral when bobby has his outburst talking about how everybody knew that she was in trouble but nobody helped her um so in that way we we all killed her um but it's really it's really audrey's character that's kind of personally shaken and changes because of the way that laura's death has what 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 laura's death has revealed about the town and I love that about her character. I love that she is the sexy one. You know, she's the very uh, flirtatious, uh, the vixen type character, but she's not exploited. Uh, she's not, what's the proper way to say this? She's not treated as 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 a slut, or if you will. You know, she's not that type of character. She's just a flirtatious, openly sexual persona. Um, and it's not a negative light. It's not a stereotypical light. I just, I love Audrey. And, 
in season two, we'll talk more about that. But also want to talk a bit about, especially since you mentioned people's reactions, the not so much the pilot, because that's like the immediate shock for both Laura's parents, but the way that they're kind of processing and handling the grief throughout the rest of the season, um, especially after her funeral, when it almost seems like the rest of the town just has moved on. And, and, um, um, Audrey's father, uh, Mr. Horn, I forget his first name right now. Leland Palmer. Oh no, Ben Horn. Ben Horn. That's it. Ben Horn. Yeah. Um, he, uh, like it basically is done with Leland. Like this guy's of no use to me in business anymore because he is, you know, he wasn't able to wake up the next, the day after his daughter was discovered dead and just come back to work like a normal human being. Like, like it's almost like so callous. And, and so Leland is, is, I, I get the sense it just feels like totally alone and ignored in the world. And it, and it's really like an interesting and, and a very thoughtful approach to how people handle their grief with his character. It just is like it, it very visibly a broken, broken man um, and is treated less like someone that we need to care about and more like, go away, dude. Like you're just an inconvenience to all of us. The funeral's over. Get over it. Um, because the whole town is very clearly has their own things that they care a lot more about um, than you know you know they're just they're all they're all either moving on or they're obsessed or you know if they're the kids they're obsessed with with the murder but for different reasons um, and they're they're running their like own investigation or they're you know pro- or they're Bobby they're just they're just like falling apart at the seams. Um, and you know the whole town's kind of imploding on itself but it's less be- but at the same time that's happening you have these who need like the, the sense of community in their life and the sense of community is not there uh, and i think it's a really powerful way to approach their grief um because I mean, it literally like it just seems nobody cares about them even their niece who comes into town for the funeral is is less and in, less interested in being there for them and more interested in, in getting up to fun teenage hijinks <laughs> as a murder investigation. <laughs> yeah, immediately. I love Matt. Yeah, immediately jumps in with Bobby and Donna, not Bobby, uh, yeah. James and Donna, and like, all right, solve this mystery. Where's your Where's your van? Where's the dog? I I was gonna say I was gonna say it's like they just like immediately like just build the grab the mystery machine and go when she gets to town. <laughs> oh man, I love Maddie. Great character. It, it, I, I love Cheryl Lee. Cheryl Lee is the actress who plays both Maddie and Laura Palmer. Um, I just love Cheryl Lee. Um, what an incredible actress. I'll get to that later. Sorry. It's it's hard to, to try to restrain thoughts and feelings uh, for me because I, I have seen the series and the movie well over, you know, 10, 11, 12 times um, at this point. You know, it's all this this one big massive story for me at this uh, at this point, juncture yeah i i think uh surely uh laura and audrey are the very interesting contrasting characters audrey seemingly trying to go through the same steps of life that laura did by the end of the show um she not only cons her way into the perfume counter where laura worked but she also cons her way into um one-eyed jacks where it's the uh uh, a gentleman's club, for for lack of a better term, la- slash casino. Um, brothel, brothel is legit. Yeah. Uh, brothel slash casino, where Laura seemed to, uh, if not work, be displayed there in in the magazine. Um, 
and comically we find that Audrey is uh, has also ended up working here and Ben, the owner of this this establishment and also Audrey's father, is her first customer. Ew. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be wonderful. Yeah. 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 Um, the whole one-eyed jacks thing is quite inconsistent. I think one-eyed jacks, and this is a David Lynch thing. The just use of red as a color uh, is really it, he uses especially red drapes, mm-hmm. um, and they're all over. You know, when you're looking in one-eyed jacks um, in the back room, there's red drapes, and it's like it's always a sign that something unseemly is happening. And it just like triggers, I think, an emotion with you. Like this is an uneasy place, but we're not going to get into why it's uneasy yet. Besides the fact that it's clearly a brothel. But I mean, they have a, a bunch, a bunch of uh, uh, red in Cooper's dreams, where mm-hmm. where he sees the um, the person in his dreams that talks backwards, but also talks forwards, and it sounds kind of weird. Uh, if I remember, Chris, you explained to me once that they uh, said the line backwards and then played it back backwards which then came out forwards ish that's correct yeah so in the the red room dream sequence you know you hear them talking you know they are kind of talking like this and what they did was they learned how to speak their lines backwards they filmed the scene with everybody moving and speaking backwards and so when you're watching the footage it is that footage in reverse so it plays forwards um and that's what creates that stilted sound in their voice and the the weird uh, movements that they make. Yeah, but uh, yeah, a lot of red there, and I I think yeah, it's trying to give you this sense of unease or just that something is not okay here. Uh, if you didn't already get it by the the backwards forwards talking. <laughs> so I want to I want to stop and talk about that. So that. David Lynch only directed two episodes this season, the pilot and episode two, which is the, the episode with the dream sequence. Um, first off, is everybody else's favorite thing in the whole world where Cooper talks about Tibet and throws rocks at a glass bottle? 60 feet, 6 inches, the mound, or the distance between the mound and the plate in baseball. Perfect. I Yeah, I that was... So just just broadly saying, that was the, the most standout episode of them for me. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what what is the dream sequence? How do you guys feel about that whole thing? It's equal parts kind of haunting, but it's and you know it's unsettling. But Lynch has this way whenever anything is supposed to be unsettling, he puts in just a tad bit of humor. So you're like, maybe I can laugh at this too because it's mm-hmm. just so unsettling. Yeah. And I like the uh, I like the contrast between Cooper and James and Donna as they try to both solve the murder in their own ways. Where Cooper is having dreams and being like, "I had a dream about Tibet. We have to we have to throw rocks at a bottle." Um, <clears throat> but then we get to James and Donna, who seem to be going through uh, the actual police methods of solving a murder, where they. Uh, find out about this thing they listen to these tapes they break into jacoby's office where like they are teenagers and not are not able to go through proper channels to do some of these investigations they are going about it in a much more scientific method than cooper's dream <laughs> i love it when, when harry pulls cooper aside he's like so tell me 
the idea for this really came to you in a dream? And Cooper's face just softens, and he looks at him and he smiles, and he just, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like he's so proud of himself for his ideas that that are clearly absurd and come come from his dreams. He's always like, this is genius because it came from my dream. Um, and now I, I love the end of that third episode where he's like, I just found the killer because I just imagined like someone watching that and then having to wait, wait a week and be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then like they get to the next episode. He's like, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it can wait. Next episode. Yeah, no, I forgot. <laughs> That's that is nineteen ninety level television trolling if that is a good way to phrase it. Yeah. I just don't like you have to you are waiting a week to get this answer. Watching a show that is unlike any much just about anything you've watched, um in especially in terms of, of crime drama, I mean just this serialized crime drama, you know, in the way that he's playing with the entire expectations of the audience by nineteen ninety standards is excellent. Um mm-hmm. now we ex- now we'd be like, yeah, yeah. Now, now if it happened, you know, if, if an episode ended of a popular show now, and they're like, hey, I discovered the killer. I'll tell you when we meet for breakfast. Everybody online would be like, nah, he's, it's not happening. He didn't. He doesn't know the answer. <laughs> it's going to be a bait and switch. I think uh, this show or television shows um, are meant to be watched week to week like this, um, or at least like give you some time between episodes, like Chris. Uh, you have watched it a dozen, a dozen times, so I'm sure you've watched it both with uh, some time between episodes and also just sitting down and watching all these episodes at once. But uh, I have. I think my record is like, I think I finished the whole thing in four days once. <laughs> uh, but Chris, what, did you give you time between each episode, or did you like just marathon through them? We, the most we watched was two at a time, and I, I did not like that. <laughs> I only watched two episodes. I bought, it was one a day, basically. I watched the pilot, and then I actually took like a week, like three or four days off, because I watched the pilot at the very early part of June, um, um, kind of right after our last recording. And then, because um, I it was like, I don't want to run into a situation where I have to watch seven episodes on the Saturday before we record, because I'm probably just <laughs> yeah. not going to like the show at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, just make it feel like work. So I, I made a point. I tried to watch the one episode a night, you know, a couple uh, on a couple weeknights. Um, so, yeah, I watched it that way. You know, maybe a day or t- like most days in between episodes were were like two or three, mm-hmm. um, which is a decent amount of time to wait. Um, but, yeah, I watched, you know, two in a row. The last seven episodes, the, the last two episodes of the season I watched in one sitting. Um, which was as much, you know, a matter of me saying, like, all right, I, I'm at the end. Like, let me just get these two done with. So in case anything comes up the next three or four days, I don't have to squeeze in time to watch it. Um, well, and those two, ep- those last two episodes play so well together. Yeah. I, so one of the things that's interesting about the structure of the show is every episode is a day. Yes. I, I don't know if anyone else noticed that, but every episode is a day. Um, but the last two episodes, that all happens in one night. Yeah. So we end that second to last episode with James and Donna breaking into Jacoby's office, and Bobby dumps the cocaine in um, James' motorcycle, and then we pick up right right there on the next episode. Mm-hmm. So, so the, those those last two episodes they work so well as just marathoning them. Um, however, for me, I end up I, I restricted myself this time 
and it was very difficult to do so. I just want you to know, Corey, that I put in an extreme amount of restraint and effort to not watch the season two pilot because I get I still even though I've seen it a million times, I still get emotional at the end of the final episode of season one. And I know how amazing the season two pilot is. So I just like always dive right into that. Um, and then I slow back down uh, this time. This time I watched one or two episodes over the course of two weeks. Um, tried to tried to really pace myself. Uh, you know, I, I I think I think it can be watched either way. Personally, um, I like watching a bunch of episodes all in a row. I'll watch like four or five um, some some days just because I get so engrossed into the series. Yeah, and I think what you what you're really missing when you watch watch them all at once each episode tends to have like a big overarching theme going with it and episode episode that's not always consistent um mm-hmm. and that's what i really like about again that's what i really really like about television um and uh i think that when we talk about television nowadays that is serialized quote-unquote uh and, like stuff like breaking bag obviously uh does that kind of thing and uh what was the other like modern television that is very good? I don't know. Whatever. The the very very good television knows how to do it, where you have an overarching story, and you can do this episode by episode storytelling of it. But then we have stuff like uh, Marvel's television shows, which seem to be uh, a couple episodes, and then the last episodes are just a very long movie. And they don't really under like they take the idea that there should be an overarching story. And they don't take anything else from how that should be done, uh, much like the Star Wars Heroes Journey thing. So they take the the key Star Wars things, but they never read the Heroes Journey. Yeah, yeah. The, the the Marvel TV shows, as much as I've enjoyed them so far, and I'm quite enjoying Loki. Um, they're just one big movie that's cut into chunks. Mm-hmm. Yep, I I I agree, and it it's. If you can do you can do a lot more with television. You don't have to do the the movie. Yeah, and the, you know, one, one just division, a long movie. One division first three episodes were peak. That 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 was what I wanted and expected out of that television. It's really really good. Yeah. And that became a movie for the. Re- yes. yes. Yeah. It's interesting that we we talk about that now because Twin Peaks: The Return um, is by David Lynch's own statement in an eighteen hour movie that is just cut up into chunks. Um, that's why they're, they're called parts instead of episodes. Um, and it's also not season three of Twin Peaks. It's Twin Peaks The Return, a limited event series. Corey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way that David Lynch um, paced and structured The Return, each part still plays like its own self-encapsulating item um, with with its own themes and its own approaches to um, overarching uh theme and story is as well as being a piece of this larger puzzle um david lynch does that so super super well so when when, when we get to the return you'll kind of see what i'm talking about that you could you could watch it as one big movie that's just cut up into chunks but the way that those chunks are cut up makes such perfect sense um for so many different reasons and it's it's an act of beauty um, and that's something that a lot of TV doesn't really do for me. Just seeing what slash who we have not talked about yet. Um, Josie, you haven't talked about we've, Josie too much. We haven't talked about Lucy at all, have we? No, <laughs> Lucy. Oh, oh my God. Lucy. I love Lucy. Yeah, she's the 
she's the other like just beaming positivity person at the you know the police barracks police off police station and it's like it's it's in good contrast to the fact that you only ever see her being like you know being around when they're doing the police business which is supposed to be them investigating the murder but for some reason they the investigation involves donuts and all sorts of other things well donuts are they it's it's how you function in a police police work environment you have to have them or else you can't you can't find that motivation you're not getting that fuel donuts and coffee that's what it is that's what it's all about um uh, yeah, i i like uh this character generally because she, like when we first introduced to her we kind of get an impression from uh the generic blonde white woman uh look of her and also the the higher pitched voice that seems to suggest that she is maybe not as smart as uh, she tries to put off but uh, as we learn more and more in the series she is actually incredibly smart and at one point uh, after the dream sequence she is reading a giant book on Tibet so she uh, at the very least wants to do well and wants to do her her job well and she seems to be very caring also because she places all this giant smorgasbord of donuts out every morning and like the I don't know F or G story of Lucy and um, their cop. Um, oh yeah, the other the, the cop that Andy, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Andy's uh, the very bump, kind of the bumbling cop. <laughs> yeah, Lucy and Andy. Um, I like their their playing off each other. We know that they're dating and stuff, and we uh, we just don't know what quite what's going on with them until the last couple episodes when Lucy reveals that she is pregnant, and Andy does not seem to know how to process this information. Um, I was gonna say about. Um, Lucy also like you, you indicated you know she's really smart she's she's well she's she's reading at the the desk and when she's not doing other work um, I also noticed like she seems very just organically part of the investigations she overhears things yeah. she relays messages um, you know and you know overall it's it's like she's clearly very smart and again playing with expectations to a character that I think in a lot of other shows is treated either as just you know an afterthought or you know you know the attractive lady at the desk that we're just going to have here um which again is just another very smart thing that this this show is doing um i'm trying to think of i mean and we, we talked about uh we mentioned josie another extremely interesting character that i i'm looking forward to learning a lot more about um she's playing multiple sides it would seem um in terms of her relationships um, at yeah, least she's that's... like four peaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now, I mean, even now, it's it's you know after after the the first season, you're not really given a full perspective on who she who's like what her actual end goal is, um, and I guess in some way whether she's a good person or a bad person um, in terms of her actual core motivation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all over the place what she's what she's doing. Um, and it's really, really interesting. Um, Pete's there to help her out um, when she needs Pete, um, and she, you know, is close with Doctor with the, with uh, not Doctor Harry um, Harry Truman. Um, Harry S. Truman. Harry S. Truman. Yeah, that, 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 that should be easy. simple to remember. That should be simple <laughs> to remember. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but then there's also other side relationship with um, Ben Horn. Uh, it's really, you know, what exactly is game is she playing? Really interesting character that we the show does not give a lot away about early on, which is wonderful. 
um, super important in, in storytelling of that's of this nature, not to play all the cards right away. Yeah, yeah, I like uh, I like Josie as the only uh, non-white person in this cast, uh, but also her, yeah, as you were saying, her story is extremely interesting. She was uh, married to the the former Packard owner, who seems to be much older than her. And now she is in this relationship with Harry and uh, feeding some information to Harry, but also receiving information from Ben about Catherine, who is sleeping with Ben, uh, and they are not married either. Um, they are having an affair with each other, and just very... Uh, I wrote several times that this town is very incestuous, um, and I mean that in any way that I can possibly... Like you said at the beginning, everybody's screwing everybody. Yeah. So one thing, one thing, a couple of questions that I want to ask the two of you... Um, first, I'm curious, who do you think killed Laura Palmer? The whole town did, to quote. Amen! To roughly <laughs> quote Bobby. Amen! Uh, I, I don't know, like, I will be honest, like, at first it's like, uh, you know, mystery, I'll probably get invested in, in figuring out who the killer is, but it's just like, do, it's, it's it, in, in a sense, it's almost like I don't care who, who killed laura palmer it seems so secondary to everything else that i want to find out about twin Peaks. yeah and i think the show does a really good job at uh centering the story around uh laura palmer but like really the the if this kind of differentiation makes sense the story is about who killed laura palmer but the plot is just about this town of twin who is all involved in, around the death of laura palmer and uh, yeah, I don't. I also have no idea who would do it. The um, the obvious signs point to Leo, but I doubt he is smart enough slash cares enough to do that. I would not be surprised if it's just someone who we have not. Met. I would think I would wager it's someone we've met, but um, and maybe someone we've seen a lot of. But no, I don't think it's anybody we've seen a lot of. Now that I think about it a little more, it's hard. It's hard to say. Yeah, Leo's the guy that they basically you know are spending this whole first season trying to pin pin it down on like make you think that's the guy they need to pin down um and then some twists come in and they're like actually you know it may have been someone else and um maybe it was renault and then they meet renault and it's there is another renault brother so renault brothers yeah Yeah. um it's overall i don't i mean of all the main i don't think any of the main characters did it if if any of the main characters did it i would have to say it was bobby um because he's just like clearly going into mania but i think that's less induced by having a guilty conscience over killing someone and a lot more induced by the fact that all the just the stress and anger of the entire world that kind of he claims laura dragged him into is bubbling over and he just has snapped yeah so yeah being dragged into that world so laura could get cocaine for herself uh, yeah. Thanks, Bobby's answer. See, I, lo- I, lo- I love, I love, the way that you guys first answered the question because that that shows so wholly that this series was ahead of its time. That if it was to come out now, the audience is ready for it, um, ready for something like this, and it could have flourished and lived such a wonderful, full David Lynch life. Because um, in 1990, that's all anybody cared about was who killed Laura Palmer. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. And uh, that led to, you know, that eventually led to the series' own demise. Um, because, like we were saying, this was the first show to really do what it had done. And so people weren't used to, you know, 
not knowing the answer by the end of the the, the episode. Like, where's my answer? Where's uh, the episode's over? This is crazy. Um, and yeah, just just a damn shame what happened to this to this series that everybody that's all everybody cared about was who killed Laura Palmer and not what David Lynch was really truly doing with the series, which you guys understand that implicitly. David Lynch used Laura Palmer as an entryway into the world of Twin Peaks, and the show was about Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, I it was much to its own punishment. It had to air on network TV, which is just this very... They're so... I mean, it's all metric-based, and you don't get the leeway that you may get if, if this was on a subscription service. Like, and it's why it was definitely, I mean, obviously very ahead of its time and why he was able to, to make, we haven't gotten there yet, but why he was able to make the return in 2017 for Showtime. And basically, my understanding was Showtime was basically like, go wild, dude. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> um, like, and, 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 and it, you know, ABC was never going to tell him go wild. They 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 were going to make him work within some confines. And I think restrictions sometimes it, with, with creating art and media is really good sometimes because it makes you go against you know you're like oh i need to get from point a to point b but they're not letting me go the way that i would logically go so i have to you know do this and that but um yeah the the fact that the show became who killed laura palmer versus holy shit what is going on with this town i think a lot of the blame has to fall on abc for that and 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 the fact that it didn't maybe wasn't centralized i was looking up kind of predecessor serialized dramas um and i mean even not not so much soap operas that were on during daytime but prime time and i you know like dallas and dynasty both came to mind um and both of those were i think much easier they didn't obviously have the well there was who shot jr with dallas but there was the ensemble cast of characters that were put together um largely through familial bonds and i think that is a lot easier to communicate to an audience then hey here's this then maybe communicating to the audience hey here's this town everybody's actually it's like a big family but they're just in a town i just don't know if that especially in 1990 if people were ready for that kind of way to think um especially in terms of the way that they had been fed television for you know decades beforehand yeah Uh, everything was about a family i i'm trying to think of even the sitcoms Cheers is revolutionary because it's about a, fi- a found family at a bar, basically. Um, Mash. Mash is is yeah, found family at a um, um, in, Korean you know, War camp. In the Korean War camp, and, and and that's that's the extent of it. And those are comedies; they're lighter. Um, TV dramas were very procedural, weren't they? For the most mm-hmm. part, yes. Hill Street Blues with Mark, Mark Frost tried to push the envelope a little with some continuity. Um and 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 in and, and, you know character relationships that de- evolved over time in the the eight throughout the the run of the show but um even then it was all very light and it didn't affect the overall your overall enjoyment if you missed a couple episodes of L A Law like you know oh this person's now you know doing this or that you're like oh I you know whatever it's easy to explain to me I, Twin Peaks if you miss an episode you number one miss part of the show like part of the overall plot and number two it's just you know it's easy it's harder to, to relay yourself into this town um i kind of was getting off topic a little but the 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 show is is essentially it's telling you these people are the same as the family you would see on dynasty but they're terrible people 
you know, kind of <laughs> linked together through terrible circumstance. And so that leads into to my other question that I wanted to ask you too. And I'll I'll revisit this question a couple more times, so get used to it. What do you think of Laura Palmer as a character? For a character, we never well we get to briefly see clips of her alive as a character that is deceased. We it feels like she's part of the cast, like just the way that she's treated and the way you slowly learn a little bit more about her um, through the actions of others. It's it's like it's I mean obviously it's she's she's you know not alive but she's alive in the story and uh in terms of moving the the dial of the story along um and i think there's there's a pretty strong point to make that what bobby said is the opposite and like this town was disintegrating because of laura that is briefly hinted at it a couple times like bobby's life appeared to have been ruined by her like you know is she the true antagonist of the show? I guess we'll, we'll, we might be able to find out a little more, and we might get there. But it's hard. I mean, that's hard to say that that was that they were going to get away get away with presenting the show truly like that in 1990, 1991. That the victim is the antagonist. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good point. Where like Laura very well could be the the bad guy of the, of the show, um, if not the bad guy, the antagonist. But it doesn't seem like she was involved in a lot of good things um i do like the the character of laura like obviously we have to learn about her through the third person and, and never from from her own point of view um and i find that extremely extremely interesting just the way that um we we first see her as the, the homecoming queen or whatever um the scanned up model citizen who had this boyfriend and bobby and uh, then we find out that she had another boyfriend in James. She may, may or may not have had some sort of uh, too close relationship with Dr. Jacoby. Um, and we, she got Bobby into uh, dealing cocaine so she could take cocaine. She seemed to have mental health issues because she was seeing Jacoby at all. Uh, and like in a, in a lot of ways, she seems to be the glue of this town despite the fact that uh, there is almost no way that everyone knew her pretty closely. Like I imagine, some of their interactions were largely cursory. Or, uh, but yeah, we she she has uh, been integral to this. And, um, obviously, it shows about her death. But uh, just seeing the the waves that happen after her death and like how that affected everybody. Noted. Duly noted. Thank you. Sorry, I, I'm reading my notes to see if I ever forgot anything. Like the first, one of the first times we see Audrey, she's sitting at the at the reception desk with uh, the receptionist. She's poking a pencil into a styrofoam cup of coffee. We assume this is empty because we don't know anything about Audrey yet. But then she takes the pencil out, and a bunch of coffee just spills out of it. And we're like, "Oh, she's a dick." That's what we learn about her. <laughs> uh, so glad that they changed her hair between the pilot and the first episode of the series that uh, year of growth was very beneficial to to audrey's uh, appearance her like the 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 audrey hairstyle that she has during the bulk of the, the episodes it's it's perfect for the character it's just like visually and this is da- what we've talked about with david lynch before how he's so good with visually presenting things to you it just visually presents like yep i know exactly what kind of character she is the trope of at least mm-hmm. she's the, the the sexy mischievous the femme fatale. Femme yeah. fatale, yeah, all of that, yeah. So I kind of I kind of dread saying it, but I have to keep consistent 
have to keep consistent. Were there any things that people disliked about the first season? I think, I like Chris had said earlier, I think it's the perfect season of TV. Yeah. I think it's the perfect season of TV. It's as good as t- a TV season I've, I've ever seen. Um, it deals with my, like, these are, it, because we, we, we try to do this, and I think it's good that we try to do it during our, our talks of, of movies and, and now TV shows with Twin Peaks, <laughs> one thing is, and it is restricted by the TV medium, is there are some points that just, especially watching it without ad breaks, we're cut between scenes it's sometimes of a jarring rate. Um, like, not not a jarring rate, but it's like a jarring shift, but yeah, I have to remember, oh yeah, there probably was like three minutes of Alka-Seltzer ads in here or something, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we talk a lot, or not we, not the, the royal we of uh, TV and film analysis talk a lot about uh, how we should have uh, butts and because, or uh, these kinds of transitions instead of and then we talk to Norma and whoever, and then we talk to Bobby and whoever. And like, that's kind of how it feels like, but it never feels like we are just going from person to person to person, because we are learning, like, substantial things about the plot and these characters in each of these scenes. So even if they they don't uh, personally have any connection to each other, um, they are all connected by Twin Peaks, the town. And it never feels awkward in that way even though it does kind of feel like we are going from person to person uh, without any rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. I know, Corey, you had mentioned something um, early on when you were watching the pilot that you felt some of the music cues were a bit awkward and thought you did, which I, I, remember, I remember you saying that So when I, when I watched the pilot, which I think was later that same day, um, I uh, I was trying to listen to it, and uh, if that is what you said, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you came around. You know, I knew you said the soundtrack was was terrific, which it is. Um, but I think the the way that they place the cues works beautifully, even if it doesn't seem proper at the moment. By the time the cue finishes playing and the scene is through playing, it it turns into something um, all altogether beautiful. Yeah, I don't remember saying that. Maybe I but um, I disagree with myself. Uh, I would like to mention that it starts episode three with Ben and his brother Jerry and Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, which were you happy when you finally saw them eating ice cream together? Uh, I don't remember them eating ice cream together, but yes, I was probably happy. <laughs> they were eating what was it? Um, Rocky Road was it? No, it was uh, vanilla something. I think I vanilla. French okay. vanilla, and uh, it was when. Uh, Jerry, when uh, Ben finds out that Jerry had told the Icelanders about One-Eyed Jacks and that the leader of the Icelanders wanted to finalize the deal at One-Eyed Jacks and Ben was eating ice cream and he's like, get them back on the fucking boat. We're going now to One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I was talking about, it was beginning of episode three. Jerry shows up and he brings them Bree sandwiches and Ben, like a freaking maniac, eats it from the side. What is he doing? Eating it like a champion is what he's doing. <laughs> I remember. So if you watch uh, the behind the scenes footages and interviews that are included, oh, there's so many bonus features. I spent so many hours watching all of them. Um, Richard Bamer, the actor who plays Ben Horn said that when he was uh, shooting that scene, 
he was trying to eat it normally, and David Lynch was telling him, he's like, no, just go into it. Dig into it like a man. Um, <laughs> and uh, he would tr- take a bite and, tr- and say his lines, and David Lynch would be like, no, what are you doing? You, you're enjoying the sandwich. And they did the take over and over again until just uh, Richard Boehmer said, fuck it, I'm just going to be ridiculous and shoved as much of the bread into his face as he possibly could <laughs> and delivered his lines to where you can't understand a word he's saying. And David Lynch was like, perfect, that's what I wanted. <laughs> of course. Dude, David, Lin- David Lynch stories about him on set are just, everybody just, I feel like everybody must obviously i mean it's always said you know no you know working on a set it gets a little tedious when you have to do reshoots and reshoots (laughs) david lynch seems to up the ante in terms of making each reshoot more fun (laughs) each new take more fun like Mm -hmm. and the guy's just like what like he's like be ridiculous and the guy's like i'm not gonna be that ridiculous no be ridiculous (laughs) basically no i think my predominant memory uh of david lynch is going to be reading about how he drove around the blue velvet set where presumably (laughs) the the woman was uh either naked or covered in like a a coat between scenes and he is just riding around on a, a, a tricycle yeah that's such a good image like it's so vivid and you can see it perfectly uh love it love it love it love it uh, speaking of David Lynch stories, um, I don't know if you want to put this audio that I just sent you, Corey, into uh, the podcast at all, but there's a, a behind-the-scenes feature where Angelo Badalamente is talking about um, when he wrote Laura Palmer's theme for the for the score, and David Lynch was sitting there with him, and he <laughs> he goes on about how David, David Lynch is telling him, you're going through a dark forest. You know, with David David Lynch's impeccable voice, which for some reason I can't imitate quite well right now. Um, you know, going through a dark forest, and he was like, "Like this? Yeah, just like that, Angel." And then you're coming through to a clearing, and the clearing it opens up. It's like like this. He's like, "Yes, Angelo. Yes, just like that." It's one of the <laughs> funniest, best video clips. Um, and if you played the whole thing, the whole four minute video in this podcast. The listeners would be all the the better for it. Um, if not, you should just listen to it um, when we're done recording because it is majestic. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the the score. I have nothing bad to say about the first season. I have I have nothing nothing bad to say at all. There's nothing that I dislike. Um, when I first watched it, it was revelatory for me. The second time I watched it, it was earth-shattering for me. Um, it's it's the thing that I turn to. This Twin Peaks is my desert island pick. Um, just give me Twin Peaks, the Fire Walk with Me movie, and the Return. Just give me Twin Peaks, and that's my desert island thing. I would be perfectly happy with that. Is the only thing. Um, I this is actually the second time I've watched this series this year. Um, earlier this year, I just I just. About every six or seven months, I just am like, you know, I I want to watch Twin Peaks again, and it's not it's not for you know trying to dive deeper into the mystery like it's so multi layered that I can't uh, suss everything out. Um, that's not the case with the original Twin Peaks. Um, Firewalk with me, absolutely, and The Return, oh my god, um, but it's just it it's entertaining it the the whole series 
puts a big smile on my face, makes me feel stupid happy. The the as soon as that theme comes on, when the the the, the opening shot of the bird comes up on the screen, boom 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 boom. Um, I feel it deep within my soul, um, and it's just it's just it's comforting, and it, nothing enter- entertains me or captures my imagination more than than twin peaks so like i can't even remember if the first time i watched it if i had any issues with the series because any issues i had with the series have been washed away through repeated visits um you know i i i I understood the plot a little bit better i understood the way that david lynch was was crafting the show so any any nitpicks that I might have had about a transition here or the way that a story moved from point A to point, you know, three, not point A to point B, point A to point three, it didn't didn't bother me because I was able to understand it um, more deeply and I, I kind of felt like it, I was living through it, like it vibed through my whole body. Um, so I just I have no input when it comes to them except to my gushing. Uh, I guess I'll mention that uh, Leeling, the Ray Wise, really sells the. I mean, obviously it's tragedy because Laura Palmer is dead. She's a teenager and still in high school, but uh, he really sells that um, he and his wife were extremely affected by it, and he acts to the point that like we don't really need to see anyone else's sadness or trauma as a result of. Laura's death, uh, because he is just so, so, so heartbroken and uh, broken as a person that her, his daughter has died. That, um, we don't need to see that from anybody else. Just incredible, incredible acting from Ray, Ray Wise. Ray, Ray Wise, Wise is a MVP. hard thing to say, I guess. The, the, when he shows up to dance in episode, is it episode six? six? I believe. Yeah, and then and then and then it's like and then everybody's like he because this goes back to kind of what I said before like that he's treated as an inconvenience like his trauma and grief is an inconvenience for everybody else and like he shows up and it's just this absurd scene and they're like dance with him just dance with him and then the <laughs> Iceland and the Icelanders are like oh this looks fun and goofy and hokey let me get out there and dance this will be what these goofy Americans do and it's just like and it's just. He plays it so well because the whole time it's just silly, it's goofy, and you're like, I, you're like, also at the same time, you're like, but my god, I have to, I feel awful for this guy. His daughter is dead, and nobody gives a shit. Especially his business partner, Ben. His business here. partner, the guy who's supposed to be like the close, like a very close, you know, compatriot yeah. of him. It's yeah, like as soon as, as soon as soon as Ben finds out Laura's dead, he's like. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry, blah blah blah, and that's the last time you see Ben seem to care at all about it in yeah. a human way. Yeah, that's what I was about to say too. It, especially because the first time you see Ben talking to Leeling about this, he's like, hey, "Just go home. You shouldn't be here. You need to take care of your wife, take care of your family." And then we see him being like, "Catherine, dance with him. Jerry, get him the fuck out of here." Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm struggling right now to think of. Of other things productive to say that's not just me picking out individual scenes. Like right now, my brain is just wanting to to talk about the scene where they arrest Jacques in the final episode and Andy. Like this, it feels like this completion of this big story arc for Andy, which I don't want to do to do that because um, I, I we then then we'll just be talking about the whole eight episode thing. Um, but there's so much payoff. I just yeah, it's yeah. good. 
Um, I guess the last thing I'll mention is, like, I love Egg, Big Egg's character. Um, him as a sort of do-everything kind of guy in the town. And uh, especially um, him and Norma, who are obviously in love with each other. They, I believe they're having an actual affair with each other. Um, but uh, And we don't know why that... Uh, Egg is still with Nadine, who has an eye patch for some reason. We don't know why yet. And also, um, I mean, we kind of get an impression that Hank is not going to be one that allows Norma to leave the this relationship. But um, they have clearly made the wrong decisions in life that led them up to not being high school sweethearts, just being two, uh, two people in a gold hood who want to be high school sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I love Ed and Norma's relationship. It's... Uh it feels like it, that's the true relationship in the series. You know, even though they are cheating on their spouses with each other, like there's, there's something pure and honest with their relationship and their love towards each other. Yeah. They are like this microcosm of everything else that's happening. Like, uh, Ben and Catherine do not feel that way at all, obviously, because they are both terrible people. Um, but yeah, Norma and Egg represent the peak uh, not peak, uh, ideal relationship between people in this town. Like, have the, have this town not heard of divorce at all? <laughs> the, 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 cl- the closest divorce lawyer must be in, like, Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, that's a good point about their relationship, and it's almost symbolic of, like, this is what the town should have, but everybody's so self-absorbed in their own machinations that, you know, the pure thing that you all could have if you did the right thing, you're not getting. Uh, and I'm worried that their arc is headed for tragedy as well, but we'll see what, what comes out of that. I just don't know if anybody in this town is going to be allowed to be happy. Yeah, Except we'll for see. Pete, who's who's always going to be happy no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited to watch the second season and the return especially, because, like, um, obviously we uh, love the show a lot, but, like, if it was only this season, I would not like this show as much, just because um, I don't really need a payoff to Laura's death, uh, as we have mentioned, but I, I would like a payoff or closure to some of these relationships and goings-on of the town. Yeah. What is this? so um there is a meme that you can find if you search twin peaks internet about james's forehead (laughs) (laughs) Um, i just sent them a a picture of james's forehead one of the memes there's uh there's so many of them like it's it's hilarious because it's true (laughs) <laughs> um, I remember seeing one tweet years and years and years ago that was uh, one tweet years and years ago that was one of those repeated images that was went across like four or five tweets that was just his forehead going on and on forever and ever. I was I was going to say, I mean, obviously, usually uh, high schoolers are in their 20s when they're cast. He is the least convincing of all the high school students. I'm like, this guy could. This guy looks like he's 35. <laughs> he was only uh, early 20s, probably when they filmed it. I don't know the exact age. Yeah, he was born in '67, so probably 24 20, or something. 20, 22, 23. Yeah. Mm. But I lo- I'm looking at pictures of him now, and minus less hair, he, his face has not aged a day since 1991. Yeah, yeah. he has zero hair now, which is very surprising because he has a lot of hair. In <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's fun. It's always that's always like a funny thing with um 
anytime that high schoolers it's high school dramas because they're usually you know they might cast people when they're 18 or 19 for the first season but you know very quickly they outgrow even looking remotely close to a high schooler yeah. but this guy came came fresh out of the womb not looking like a high schooler yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, um do we have anything else, or shall we close out this episode and we can talk about any lingering thoughts that we forgot about uh, in the discussion? Yeah, I think I think we did a pretty good job of talking about the the impact that Twin Peaks had. Talked about the structure of the the series. Um, you know, we we could we could go on about our favorite bits. Like, I'm surprised I didn't mention the llama, which is if you look on uh, the Taiku podcast website. The the llama is my uh, my avatar for my 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 guest spot host whatever you want to call it on the the host page. But we did a really we did a really good job of talking about it, and without getting too much into spoilers, which we're going to inherently get into spoilers when we talk about season two. Um, so I think we're okay. Uh, Til Harry S Truman IRL play division one hockey it's pretty good really oh yeah another another item of trivia that relates directly to you Corey is mark frost nephew pitches for the white Sox. yeah lucas giolito Giolito. Giolito. yeah Yeah. so there you go we've we've come full circle here yeah i think i've mentioned Giolito a couple of times to chris because i saw the twin peaks connection (laughs) santa monica king hollywood connection uh but anyway um shall we close out this episode where can we find everybody online well, before we close it out, I just want to mention to everybody, next month, we're not doing Twin Peaks Season 2. We're going to be talking about Wild at Heart, uh, which is the film that David Lynch made at between the pilot and when Twin Peaks went to series. Um, so it was filmed in late 89, early 90, came out in 91. Uh, so look forward to that. Um, and then we'll come back to Twin Peaks, the first uh, nine or ten episodes of Season 2 to finish off the Laura Palmer case uh, the month after that. I like telling people what we're doing next. It makes me feel good. Yeah, I was going to do that, and then I forgot. Thank you, Chris. So where yeah. can we find you, Chris? Okay, yeah, um, I am on Twitter, at Antonius Pius. Um, you can always just go to the Taiku Podcast uh, website. Link is there in my profile with my picture of uh, it's Space Brothers. Anyway, yeah. um, not a llama. <laughs> And you can find me on the Twitters at GoKoofy. Uh, you can also find my YouTube page, uh, Cups of Night Films, which, as of this recording, the last video that I made was a couple months ago, but it was uh, Twin Peaks. Surprise, surprise. So. <laughs> and? Oh, yeah, that's right. And you can also find me at Letterboxd at GoKoofy. That's, I always forget about that. I always forget about my Letterboxd, even though that's where I'm a... Uh, most active at currently going through the uh halfway to black friday sale vinegar syndrome releases so join me over there it's fun stuff three uh three twin peak reviews from chris on letterboxd only three uh that's all i'm putting only showing me i'm gonna have to double check your work here because i know i at least have nine reviews for uh fire walk with me